morning, Antioch Church. It's good to be with you. My voice is a little raspy here. I've had a cold the last few days, and um, I actually went to the doctor because I had a cold last year, and my cough wouldn't go away for two weeks. And so um, I said, you got something that'll clear up this, you know, the stuff in my lungs. And so he gave me these steroids, like for a cold, which is, I love my doctor. He's amazing. So he gave me steroids, and it was amazing. It just cleared up my lungs, and I was just, I felt powerful and focused, and it was great. So I had this cold. I don't get a cold very often. I had this cold for three days. I called my doctor. I said, can I get some more of those steroids? Because that stuff is amazing. So anyway, I'm on this stuff, and I realized that, that you can't sleep when you're on it. So I was up all, all night long last night. I was up just thrashing and raging, you know, like roid rage or something, and just, it was bizarre. But, so that's why my voice is kind of raspy. Really glad to be here this morning. Um, how many people uh, here, it's your first time at Antioch? First time. Amazing. Look at all those hands. It's great. It's my first time too, so that's great. How many people have been with the church from the start? Two and a half years. Two and a half years. All right. And, and all those in between. What a fantastic thing. I love the fact that you guys are starting a new church. God does amazing things in new churches. I've learned that in my experience. When young church planters come to me and they ask, about church planting, I say, you're nuts, don't do it. That's my first response is, you're crazy. You just, you're out of your mind, don't, just don't even try. And then if I can't persuade them not to do it, my second statement is, it's the most exciting thing in the world. It's the greatest adventure in all of life. And you're going to be amazed to see what God does through a group of people that he brings together for his purposes. So it's a fantastic thing. I want you to know, I believe with all my heart in the power of this moment. I mean, right now, this moment, when we gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, we worship the living God, we open up the scriptures, God's word, which is living, it's powerful, it's true. When we love each other and we prepare our hearts to go out into the world and change the world, that's the most powerful thing that's going on anywhere. There's nothing more important in all the world than what's happening right here. And that's true every single time God's people gather together. I love that. I'm committed to that. Now, in our church, we do three services every Sunday. And so we have a 5.30 service, right? So last Sunday was Super Bowl Sunday. And so uh, I came out to do the 5.30 service, and it was, it was me and three guys in a sanctuary filled with women. And it was, it was a great time. I told our staff afterwards, I said, I was so excited to be there. It was just the greatest thing ever because uh, it was the third sermon of the day for me, and um, I said, you know what, I absolutely, with all my heart, I mean this, there's nothing better going on in town than us being here right now, opening the Bible together. I'm excited to get in the Word with you. You ready? Do you have your Bible? You bring Bibles here? If you do, open up your Bible to Psalm 3 this morning. We're taking a little detour from John. I understand you've been in the Gospel of John, which is right where you need to be. It's a fantastic place for you guys to be, and the focus is on Christ. We're going to look at Psalm 3 this morning, and I guess we'll find out that the focus will be on Christ even still. Because all of the Bible points to Jesus, doesn't it? Everything from page 1 to the last chapter of Revelation, it's all about Jesus Christ. And uh, what God is doing through Christ in our lives and in our world. And that's, that's a fantastic thing. Psalm 3, I, I want to take you to this morning because it's been very, very meaningful in my own life personally. I find myself going back to Psalm 3 
over and over again because Psalm 3 takes me to the epicenter of the greatest battle that I will ever face in my life, and it's the greatest battle that you will ever face in your life, and that's the battle of hanging on to your faith no matter what life throws at you. That's the battle. How do you hang on to your faith? Maybe you're on a journey to faith. Maybe you're here investigating the claims of Christ. Your friend brought you, and you're not so sure about this Christian thing. And, and you're here, and, you know, I found when I came to Christ, it was a struggle to come to faith. I mean, it was just, it was a kind of a battle in my heart. And having come to faith in Christ, I find that that battle reemerges over and over again. And, and I, I find that there's things in life that come my way, and all of a sudden my, sh my faith gets shaken and I love Psalm 3 because it navigates. It shows me how to make my way through those times. It's only eight verses. And yet it's so powerful. And the power of Psalm 3 is the great contrast from the way it begins in verse 1 and the way it ends in verse 8. Verse 1 is filled with conflict. The voices of shame doubt, accusation. That's verse 1 and 2. Verse 8, confidence. The affirmation of faith. David stating clearly his faith in the victory of God. It's a wonderful thing, but how do you get from verse 1 to verse 8? So we're going to go on a journey. We're going to read Psalm 3. If you have a Bible, you can read along. If not, just listen. Listen to the beauty of the language. Listen to this. It's God's Word. It's, it's amazing. It's poetic. Listen to Psalm 3. Let it soak in. We'll share some thoughts that I hope will be helpful to you this morning. Psalm 3 and verse 1. Well, let's read the title. It says, The Psalm of David, When He Fled from His Son Absalom. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Selah, which means just pause. Just think about that. Okay? Take a break for a minute. Get a feel for that. You notice the word many got repeated three times? Many, many, many foes, many troubles, it was William Shakespeare who said in one of his plays, when troubles come, they don't come as solitary soldiers. They come in battalions. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I've gone to some Shakespeare plays. I don't remember many lines, but with that one just nailed me. I went, amen. I felt like jumping up going, amen. <laughs> many, many, many troubles. Verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield all around me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. To the Lord I cry out loud, and he answers me from his holy hill. Selah. So let's stop. Take a minute. Take a breather. It's a totally different feel to those verses. And we've made a major transition here in this second section. It's awesome. Very uplifting. Some famous songs come from those verses. Maybe you've sung them. 
Verse 5, he says, I lie down and sleep. I awake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord, deliver me. O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the jaw. You have broken the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be upon your people. Selah. So just pause. Think about that. Get the feeling. You know, at the center of the psalm, um, there's this amazing affirmation of God. He's the shield and he's the glory, and, and it's just fantastic, the holy hill and all that. And it kind of goes back to the battle. You know, in that, that third part, it gets back to, you know, the enemies, tens of thousands, and breaking the jaws of the wicked and that whole thing. And it ends, it ends on a note of absolute triumph. All right, so that's what we're going to look at today. But to get the whole thing, we're going to have to get some context, all right? So we've got to go back now and understand a little bit about what David was experiencing. And isn't it beautiful that in the Psalms, so often we have a title. We have some context, a setting given to us so we can understand what the background is, what David was wrestling with in his life. And here it says, in this introduction, it says, this is a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Okay, fleeing from your son cannot be a good thing. <laughs> All right. This is a dark day in the life of David. Do you know this is the first prayer in the book of Psalms? It's Psalm 3, but it's the first prayer. Psalms means praises. Psalms is prayers of praise. And the first prayer of praise comes in Psalm 3. Psalm 1 and 2 aren't prayers at all. We're, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. The very first prayer in the book of prayer, the book of Psalms, is a prayer that was prayed in the most extreme situation you can imagine. The, the greatest crisis that David had ever experienced in his life, that becomes the context for this first amazing, profound prayer. And it was a family issue. Isn't it weird how family issues drive the knife the deepest into our hearts. He's fleeing from his son. So look at the picture just a little bit. You know, if you have a Bible, you can go back and you can take a look at 2 Samuel. I'm just going to read a few verses to you from this story. It's in 2 Samuel 15, 14, 15, 16, this whole business with Absalom. And Absalom, you know, it's a long story. Absalom was a disgruntled son. And... Uh, so he decided that he was going to overthrow dad and take over the kingdom. That makes, that's a long story made very, very short. He says, I'm going I'm, I'm to knock off dad. I'm going to become the king. Uh, he thinks he has the right to do this. He gets uh, some guys to back him. He's made he sweet-talked some, some friends into his camp. And now he's making his move to take the kingdom away from his father David. And it says in 2 Samuel 15, in verse 13, as you kind of catch up the story, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. 
We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. David takes off. He's fleeing for his life. I don't know if you've ever been on the run before in your life, but it's a miserable feeling. Sometimes we run emotionally. Sometimes we actually pack our bags and leave physically. Sometimes it's, it's under great threat. One of the weirdest things that ever happened to me in, in my life, and there's been a lot of weird things because I'd lived in Medford for 10 years. <laughs> Southern Oregon is like it's a really bizarre place, and God took me there to, for, I don't know why actually, but just so they could have bizarre stories to tell, I guess. But one of the weirdest things that ever happened to me was we were doing a funeral service for a guy that was in a, a paramilitary drug dealing occultic group, which pretty much sums up Southern Oregon for you. This guy's sister had come to our church, and, uh, and he died. He tried to get out of the group. And uh, when he tried to get out of the group, he mysteriously died. His car crashed. Okay, so he was, there's no doubt that he was killed, that he was murdered. And we were called in to, to do the funeral. And actually, my associate pastor was conducting the ceremony, and um, there had been a threat against our lives. We were told, if you, if you do the ceremony, they're going to kill you. We're like, they're not going to kill us. I mean... Are you joking? This isn't going to happen. And the guy told me, he said, I've got a gun, take it. And I said, do you think I'm going to pack heat to a memorial service? I'm a pastor. Would Jesus bring a pistol? Would the Apostle Paul come in like with a shotgun or something? I'm a man of God. I'm not going to do that. And so I went, and, you know, my associate pastor was up in front doing the ceremony. And, you know, it got to the end. I thought, everything's fine. Well, he, he said the final amen, and the back doors burst open, and these guys ran down the center aisle in military fatigues, with, with pistols. And um, so my friends, you know, my, my pastor friend, he said, well, that concludes our ceremony. I'll leave now. And he, he took off. <laughs> and, you know, they're coming down the front aisle, and he went up the side aisle to the back. And when he got to the back and went out into the foyer, a guy opens up the thing. He had a coat, and he pulls out a machine gun and puts a clip in it. But this was not a good day. This was a bad day. And uh, so we were held hostage in, in the funeral home. And, uh, and I went to one of them, because one of the guys in the group, I, was, I used to work out with them at the gym all the time. And I went and said, what is going on? Like, why, why are you guys doing this? And the response to me was, if I tell you, they'll kill me too. So this was a bad day. So we're there, and there's, there's a big story. A lot of things happened. But I can tell you this. I was afraid because I was told that they're going to kill your families. They're going to kill you. And they've killed other people. And so um, I drove home and got my wife got my kids out of school, packed them in the car, and headed out of town. You know, I mean, I was on the run, literally, on the run, and I was terrified, you know. I mean, if it was just me, it'd be one thing, but it's like, they're going to kill your family, you know. It's like my precious kids. <laughs> I took off, man. I left town. Went out to another a friend's house, this pastor out of town, and prayed and prayed, and I felt like the Lord said, you've got to go back got to go back. You can't live in fear. You got to go back. David's on the run. I don't know if you've been on the run in your life, figuratively, emotionally, but it's a tough spot to be in. Here's, what, here's the way that David was feeling about this. Take a look at chapter 15 and verse 30. Just get another snapshot. It says in verse 30, 
David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. And all the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. David and his whole entourage is in tears. They're sobbing as they're fleeing from town. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I've, I've been there. Skip over to chapter 16 and we'll just pick up one more picture of this whole thing. In verse Five of chapter 16, it says, As King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, the son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. And as he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. And then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut his head off. I like that guy. But King David said, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? And David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, who is of my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing that I am receiving today. And David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside on the other side, cursing as he went, throwing stones at him and showering him with filth. And the king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. And there he refreshed himself. Now, the Bible fascinates me. Like every page of it, every line of it is fascinating to me. He got to his destination exhausted. Have you ever been completely exhausted, like just thrashed? And not just physically, but emotionally. Life has wrung you out. You got nothing left. That's David in this moment. Now here's the thing that fascinates me. This one little phrase. And he refreshed himself. Because I'm thinking, well, how did he do that? I mean, how do you, in the middle of all that, how do you suddenly refresh yourself? You know, did he just get a little drink of water? How do you refresh yourself? The Hebrew, an interesting Hebrew word, literally it means to exhale deeply. He just exhaled. He found some comfort. He found a way to comfort himself, to relax, to, to let it go at that moment. What do you do? I mean, what do you do? What do you do when life is crumbling, when, when things are out of control, when your heart is wounded, when people have turned against you, when you don't even know where you stand with God, and what do you do? The answer is in Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is the answer. This is the psalm that David wrote concerning this episode. He got out there in the middle of nowhere with this sobbing, miserable group, and he collected himself, 
He refreshed himself. The Bible says many things like this about David. That at the lowest point, he found a way to strengthen himself in God. What was the secret of David? What did he do? Because I want that in my life. I want to know how to do that. I think Psalm 3 tells us. So here's how it goes. Let me give you some stuff that I think might be helpful to you. We'll go back and look at Psalm 3. First thing is this. Don't be so surprised when brutal, hurtful things take place in your life. Don't be so shocked when stuff happens in life, when the conflict comes. David says in verse 1, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? How many are saying God will not deliver him? Many troubles. David's not immune. And we're not immune either. That's the thing. A couple months ago, there was a theologian named D.A. Carson who came into town, Western Seminary. And I usually don't go over for these events, but you know, D.A. Carson's a big name, big gun. He's written like 40 books. He's an amazing New Testament scholar. And I said, oh, I've got to go hear D.A. You know, I've never really heard him live before. This will be a great moment. So we all went over there and, and, and sat in the auditorium. And, and his message was going to be about suffering, a biblical perspective on suffering. So I was there with my pen. I'm like, this is going to be amazing. And D.A. Carson is a serious guy. I mean, you don't want to mess with D.A. Carson. D.A. got up there in his starched suit with his bifocals on, and he peered down at us over his bifocals like this. And he has a very deep voice. And he pointed his finger. And he opened with these words. He said, If you live long enough, you will suffer. We all kind of slowed down. We were like, No, no. I want to go home. <laughs> You will suffer. And then he proved it to us. I mean, he went on and on. He told us about the <laughs> suffering of the world and the agonies of life and the losing loved ones. And if you get old and decrepit, and it just went on and on and on. It was just it was pathetic. And I was taking notes furiously. I'm like, you know, wow. And the whole theology of suffering was amazing. Then I got in my car, and I'm driving home, and I'm listening to the radio. And as I'm driving home... I'm driving up in my neighborhood past Palisades Elementary School. And on the radio, right then, we're driving home from the conference. The radio report says, news alert, in a freak accident, a young boy has been killed on the playground of Palisades Elementary School just hours ago. I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh my God, I need to go down there. So I, I made a right turn. I went down to the school, pulled in the park lot. There were news trucks there, you know, with their big antennas up and everything. And DA talked about this. He said, you know, if bad things happen, there's a good chance that you know someone will stick a mic in front of your face <laughs> and, and ask you for an explanation. Explain this, Pastor. So I was getting my notes out. I'm like, gosh, you know, what am I going to say? I went in there, and, and uh, it was a tragedy. It was a freak thing. This kid got kicked, you know, in the chest by a by a football, and it stopped his heart. And he died. I went, man, D.A. Carson is right, you know. There's, there's no immunity to suffering in this life. 
We shouldn't be so surprised. But here's what I've learned in the ministry, is that our doubt always tends to live in the gap between our expectations and our experience in life. That's where the doubt lives. We come to Christ and we hear these amazing promises. John 10.10. You'll be studying that, I suppose, in a month or so. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that abundantly. And we hear that we go, I'm signing up for that. Abundant life. That's what I want. We hear about joy and peace and all this you know, happy stuff. And then we give our lives to Jesus, and, you know, it's true. I mean, you go, wow, this is amazing, this is life. And then you have all these expectations that everything is going to be just fantastic, but the brokenness of our world is still a reality. We still live in a broken world. And our bodies break down, and our friends' bodies break down, and relationships break down. And people fail and they sin and sometimes they hurt us or abuse us or others that we know. We live in a fallen world. And somehow in that gap between what I expected and what I actually experienced comes a boatload of doubt. I say, wow, many are my problems. It's amazing. My stocks have fallen by 50%. (laughs) I was worth nothing before. Now I'm in the negative. This is ridiculous. It's just crazy. And so, what are we going to do? And then finally comes the biggest doubt of all, the biggest problem. Take a look at it. It's at the end of verse 2. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Now, this is the worst part of all, is that you get to that moment when you hear this voice, and the voice says, you know what? God has given up on you. God has abandoned you. That's why you're going through this. Because God's not for you anymore. Because you screwed up so bad that God is not for you. He's abandoned you. He's not going to deliver you. Or he's, giving, he's busy with other stuff. You're a lost cause. He's helping other people. He's not helping you. That's the battle. That's where the battle actually rages in our life. See, the battle, it's not out there somewhere. It's not with his son. It's not with these armies that are chasing him. It's not with the desert where he's out in the desert there. He has to find some food. The battle is in here. The battle is inside. The battle is what's really going on in my relationship with God right now? And I thought we were tight. What's this about? When I read the Psalms, I go, hey, don't be so surprised. It's the book of praise. Two-thirds of the Psalms are called laments. Did you know that? Psalms of lament. It's called praises, but it's about the toughness of life. Isn't that interesting? Shouldn't be that surprised. Here's the second thing, though, that we need to do. And this is really important. I want you to learn to redraw the circle of faith in your life and take your stand at the center of that circle with God. Redraw the circle of faith in your life. Perhaps the four most important words in this psalm are in verse 3, but you, O Lord. The NIV, it it, kind of changes up the word order, puts the word Lord later, but in the Hebrew it's, but you, O Lord. But you, O Lord. That's great. That's powerful stuff. David's world is crumbling. The battle is raging all around him. Now he realizes that the battle is actually going on in his heart and his mind. And the genius of David in Psalm 3 is that he refuses to let his life be defined by the circumstances of the moment or by the opinions of others. 
If you allow your life to be defined by circumstances, it's not going to go well. When circumstances are up, you're up. When they're down, you're down. When they're going great, your faith is strong. When they're not going so good, your faith is low. You can't do that. The genius of David, when he got to the wilderness, and he took a deep breath, he said, I've got I to gotta take this through. I've got to figure this out. Because all of a sudden, instead of just all of the voices of shame and accusation and the chaos, all of a sudden, he said, no, no, no. But you, O oh Lord, you are a shield all around me. Now, you know, shields in ancient days were big. They went all the way around. They would stand there, and the sh this particular shield that's being described, it's almost like a full circle. You could get inside it and walk around in it. And I love this because to me it's a picture of what it means to live in faith. I call it stepping into the circle of faith. His world was caving in on him. Everybody later, uh, verse 7, he says tens of thousands have surrounded me on all sides. It's literally a picture of 10,000 people from every angle pressing in on him. Okay, that's the way it feels for him. And you know what David does? He says, I'm going to step into this little circle right here. And in this circle is the circle of faith. And you know who's in that circle? God Almighty is in that circle with me. He redraws the circle of faith in his life and steps into it with God, and that's the only way he's going to make it. And it's brilliant. It's beautiful. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield all around me. You are my glory. NIV says, glorious one. King James, you are my glory. I like that translation actually better. I think it's more accurate. You're my glory. See, everybody else says, you've been ashamed of yourself. Your life is a joke. You're a loser. Those are the labels being put upon him. We hear that. We feel that. When our life is falling apart, when things aren't going that well, and we feel defeated in our lives, we get all these labels and negativity on us. And David steps into this place. He says, but wait a minute. You know what? God is my glory. David says, I'm going to find my identity, my meaning, and my value in my relationship with God. No place else. You know how to do that? There's power in that in your life. Tremendous power in that. You are my glory. He says, you are a shield all around me. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. To the Lord I cry out loud, and he answers me from his holy hill. I'm going to cry out to the Lord. He's going to answer me from his holy hill. What's the holy hill, by the way? The holy hill is that symbol of the sovereignty of God. Now, this raises a question. How did David know how to pray like this? Where did he learn this stuff? How did he learn this stuff about you're my shield, you're my glory, you're the lifter of my head, I'm praying to the holy hill, you know, God on the holy hill? How does he know this stuff? This is the beauty of the Psalms. I told you, Psalm 3 is the first prayer, but Psalm 1 and 2, they're not prayers at all. They're the gateway into the life of prayer. You can look it up later because I'm going to run out of time and somebody's going to get mad at me and I don't want that to happen. So you look it up later. Today's the Lord's Day, right? So go home and read the Word. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. You, perhaps you know this. You know what Psalm 1 is about? It's about the Word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but he meditates day and night in the Word. 
his life was like a tree planted by rivers of water. Psalm 1, at the entry to the book of prayer, is about the wisdom of being in God's Word. Psalm 2 is about the sovereign power of God over all things in this universe. It's about the Son of God. It's about the Messiah who God will place on His holy hill, by the way, enthroning Him as the Lord over all. It's a psalm about Jesus Christ. It's quoted in the New Testament. Psalm 1 is about the Word of God. Psalm 2 is about the Son of God. Psalm 1 is about the truth of God. Psalm 2 is about the sovereign power and victory of God represented by the Holy Hill. David, in Psalm 3, prays the truth of the Word and the sovereignty of God, which his mind has been saturated with. He's learned now to bring that in a personal affirmation of prayer and praise to God. And it's literally going to sustain him. Do you know how to do that? Because that, my friends is how you hang on. I learned this from some dear friends. Friends of mine I've known for many, many years. A new Christian, they took me under their wing and they, they taught me in the ways of the Lord. And they were just a couple years older than I was. I was 19. They were like you know, 22 or something, or 23. They taught me the ways of the Lord. Years later, their precious daughter, Kristen, at 13 years old, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And uh, Greg had been in the ministry, uh, just a wonderful guy, and his precious daughter, oldest daughter, diagnosed with terminal cancer. It was so brutal. I prayed with them. I prayed for Kristen. And Kristen died. And they called me and they said, will you come and do the memorial service? I went, ah. I went. I flew down to be with them. When I got to the airport, they came out. They met me. I said, I'm glad to see you, but I'm so sorry under these circumstances. And they said, you won't be sorry. Because God is going to do an amazing work. And he did. They, they shut the high school down. They bust in hundreds of kids. Kids came to Christ. It was amazing through that. I looked at them. I said to my friend Greg, I said, how do you do it, man? How did you hang on to your faith through all this? He said, well, here's what I did. He said, I learned that the only way I could do it was to take the truth of God's word and apply it to my life in prayer. And so he went on prayer walks. Every single day he got up and he walked and he prayed the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. And, but what he did was he took it as a theme, as an outline of truth. And one, he'd go around one whole block and he'd say, Our Father, which art in heaven. And he would pray and he would say, God, I believe you're my father. I believe that you love me. I believe I have a relationship with you through Christ. And, and I'm thankful for that. Every day, he'd one whole block, he would pray that. Then he'd pray, hallowed be thy name. And he'd go one whole block. And he'd pray, Father, hallowed be your name. I pray that glory will come to you through this. Because your glory is more important than my comfort. You see where, where I'm going with this? Block by block by block, he would pray every section of the Lord's Prayer. And what he was doing is stepping into the circle of faith and finding his identity and, and his meaning and his purpose and his, um, his comfort, his security 
in that place in his relationship with God according to the truth of the word and not the circumstances of his life. And I took notes and I said, dude, I'm doing that. That's what I'm doing. That's what David did. It's amazing. Let's read on. Just one last thing I want to leave you with this morning. We need to learn to break the grip of fear in our lives by focusing fully on the victory of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Break the grip of fear, folks. Take a look at it in verse 5. I lie down in sleep and I will wake again because the Lord sustains me. Evidently, he wasn't taking steroids at the time. I lie down and sleep, I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's a true test. If you're just going through the ringer but you can sleep, that's an amazing thing. Can you imagine going through all that and then being able to sleep? It's amazing. And then he says, I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. I will not fear. Now, our heart and mind give way to fear. We're told by experts, psychologists, sociologists, that fear is what takes place in our life when we feel that our personal resources are not adequate to deal with the situation we've been presented with, and especially if we're in danger. So we're in danger, and the situation's out of control, and it's beyond our control, and it's beyond our resources. Now we're going to be in fear. And we give way to fear. It sort of builds up, and it has a way of paralyzing us in life. And David says, I'm not going to give way to fear. I will not do it. I'm standing in the circle of faith. I'm fighting past this fear that I may experience in my life because of all of these circumstances. How could he do that? Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the jaw. You have broken the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. From the Lord comes deliverance. Beautiful. Now, the Hebrew of this psalm is beautiful, very poetic. I haven't had time to really develop it. I wish that we could. But uh, I'll just tell you one thing that you need to know, because it's beautiful. This word deliver, if you go back to verse 2, you'll see that these people say God will not deliver him. Literally, there's no salvation for him in God. Okay, God's not going to save him. He's not going to deliver him. Okay? The Lord says in verse, or uh, David says in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, deliver me. Same Hebrew word. All right, so they say, no deliverance. He says, Lord, you rise and deliver me. And then he ends by saying, deliverance comes from the Lord. There is salvation. There is deliverance. You know what the word deliverance is in the Hebrew? It is the word Yeshua. Yahweh, God will save. It is the name Joshua. It is the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what I love about the Psalms. They're all going to point us to Jesus. Here's how you break the grip of fear in your life. You focus your heart and mind firmly on Jesus Christ, your victorious Savior. He is the Deliverer. He is the Savior. The problem is much worse than you imagine. It's worse than the economy. It's worse than interpersonal relationships. There is a devil. There is hell. There is Satan, there is sin, there is judgment. The situation is dire. And the Bible says there is deliverance in Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. He comes to save us from everything 
It's amazing. There is deliverance. Rise up, O Lord, break the jaw of the wicked. Well, he sure did that on the cross, didn't he? He went to the cross and he died there. He defeated the power of Satan. He defeated the power of darkness. He did it for you. He did it for me. You need to focus your eyes on Jesus Christ. When these guys were coming after my family, I was scared to death. The only way I made it through every day was I had a picture in my mind of Jesus Christ walking on the water. That's what I did. It was like a Sunday school lesson, you know. I saw Jesus, and I'm walking him on the water, and when I didn't look at Jesus, I started to sing, No, help me. I'd look back at Jesus, I'd come back up again. That's the way I made it. Every single day, I said, I have to look at Jesus. Jesus will deliver me. My hope is in him. It's not in me. This situation is beyond my control, but not Jesus. No matter what happens, I'm going to keep my eyes on my Savior, on my Deliverer. Folks, there is power in the name of Jesus. There is deliverance in the name of Jesus. And you, as a follower of Christ, I want you to proclaim his name, affirm your faith, say it to him in prayer, talk to him, worship him as the risen, exalted Savior, and pray and bring all your stuff to him and lay it at the feet of this risen, victorious, amazing Lord and King Jesus Christ. Now that's how we get from verse 1 to verse 8. It's amazing. Now in the Gospel of John, I can't help but say one thing about the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, it's really interesting because John will never allow us to read any page of his Gospel without reminding us how the story ends. You know that? In John chapter 2, it's already talking about the resurrection. He's going to do this thing about cleansing the temple, and, but it's the temple of his body, and they didn't understand until after the resurrection. You're in chapter 2. You're going, what? Is he going to rise from the dead? If you've never read it before. John's, you know, he's showing you. That's how the story ends. John chapter 11, the biggest crisis in the whole thing. Lazarus has died. Jesus stayed away for three days. Talk about, you will suffer. So where's Jesus? He shows up, they say, if he had been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? Jesus says, I'm the guaranteed good ending to every story. Do you believe that? Because you need to believe it. Will you confess that? Will you live that way? We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it says in 1 Peter 1.3. Do you live your life Every day in the light of his resurrection victory, that's hope in life. I had someone recently read me a poem. It's one of these really dark poems. Why is poetry so dark these days? It's always so dark. And it's always the really good ones. Oh, that's deep. That's so meaningful. And it's just such a bummer. This poem was just about death. And it was so articulate. And you could feel the moroseness of death. And then the poet is talking about how every day of his life, every movement of his hands is colored by death. And the final breath that he'll breathe before he expires and leaves this empty universe. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I said, I said, you know, this is amazing. I said, it's a beautiful description of something. I can grant you that. It's a description of what it's like to, what it's like to live every moment of your life with a guaranteed bad ending. And you live into the shadow of death every day of your life for the rest of your life. Every decision, every happiness, it's all colored by death and the final death. I said, what a contrast to the New Testament where every day of our life is colored by the victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every day, 
everything, high, low, good, bad, it's all in the light of the resurrection hope. Deliverance comes from the Lord. It does. I want you to believe that. Live like that. You know what? You'll be a light in the world, even when things are going tough. Let's say a prayer. Thank you so much, Lord, for the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an amazing, amazing thing that we have to cherish, Lord. And Lord, even the eight verses of a psalm, Lord, can be so rich for us. Just exploring the nature of life in a broken world, but then pointing us to the salvation that only you can bring. And I'm thankful for that, Lord. Lord, I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for what you're doing here. And I'm thankful for every individual that walked through these doors, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the new folks that are here. We thank you for those who are seeking uh, what it means to really be a follower and a believer in Jesus Christ. We pray that they will come to faith. We thank you for those who have come to faith but who wrestle uh, and struggle with stuff in their life right now, Lord, in, in these tough times, Lord. We pray that they will be able to live in that circle of faith and just hang on and to work past their fear to keep their eyes on Jesus. Please, Lord, do that. We love you, Lord. We commit our way to you in Jesus' name. Amen.